Hello and welcome to episode 106 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. And I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us for this new batch of episodes. Uh, we're really excited with the episodes that we've got coming up this season. If this is your first episode, though, at the Page One Podcast, we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, talk about how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips as possible. Uh, and as I say, we've got a great lineup this season. We've got a great back catalogue as well. Uh, so there's plenty to listen to if you're into your writing or into your reading, of course. Uh, and we even have a live episode this season, How which we will be telling you about that? at the end of the podcast. You can have a chance to come along. You can see us in and, the flesh. Yeah, but l- more excitingly, you can see Adrian Tchaikovsky in yeah, the it's flesh. Probably, he's probably the larger draw than us, I suppose. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I should say as well, before we move on to this week's guest, uh, obviously uh, Tarek is a published writer and he is now a CWA shortlisted debut writer. Very exciting. Yeah, no, can't quite actually believe it, but yeah, it's been a nice surprise there. So get my fingers so crossed. When when is when do we find out the date that you win it? There's a, yes, I get to go down to a nice meal in London and, and watch, which I'm pretty sure I know who's going to win it. Janice Hallett's on there for the appeal, and that book's just been massive. So yep. that's, she's got my money. After me, okay. obviously. She's... That's very, uh, very humble of you. I see what you're doing there. <laughs> Lowering expectations. Exactly. Then no one will suspect it when I come and scoop it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but seriously, congratulations. Um, we are all very proud of you. At right. the at the right gear towers, yeah, it's been like parties it. nonstop at right gear towers. Exactly, exactly. Um, but anyway, enough about us and this self indulgent chat. Uh, let's talk about this week's guest. Yes, indeed. Who are we chatting with this week? We're chatting with Mary Kenny, who, if you are a video game player, um, you've almost certainly played some of her games that she's worked on. She's a writer who's worked on Telltale's The Walking Dead series. Uh, Marvel's uh, Spider-Man Miles Morales and she's working on the upcoming Wolverine game which is very exciting. Yeah really interesting chat to talk to her about you know we've had a few people that have written video games before um, obviously these more narrative video games but it was interesting speaking to her because she's done that sort of telltale uh, sort of branching pathways type story and that's really interesting but also, working on something like Miles Morales, Miles Morales' uh, Spider-Man game is less of that branching pathway type story, but it still involves a lot of writing, in fact, yeah. which y- you might not appreciate. On the, you know, it's not just the main story that's being written. It's all the stuff around it and things like that. Yeah. So it's interesting talking to her about that and also hearing about, you know, how they go about recording it and stuff. It's quite interesting yeah, so facts about it, yeah, that. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's, it's I mean, the Spider-Man game's more like a traditional script i suppose like a a to b linear story but yeah the way they go around it and the tech involved in it is all very interesting so i think there's a lot to learn even to to, to like and learn even if you're not a massive fan of playing video games i think there's still a lot there that everyone will enjoy absolutely um so we will get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest and to give you more information about that live podcast episode that we'll be recording in just a few weeks. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. 
or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy to use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? The first person who told me I was a good writer was my second grade teacher. <laughs> and um, I think she might have been being nice because I was eight. So I can't imagine it was anything <laughs> truly inspired. Um, but I would say the answer is yes and no in that I always loved writing. It was always one of my hobbies. Um, I did it all the time. But uh, I, like many writers, kind of bounced around what my dream job was. Um, you know, cause you end up writing about all those dream jobs, but that's yeah. not, you don't pick one of them. So at various times as a kid, my dream job was to be an astronaut and to be a shark scientist, ichthyologist, and to be a, you know, like a professional caver and like all kinds of weird <laughs> stuff. Uh, but by the time I got to college, I knew I wanted to be a writer of some description. Um, but I was trying to be really practical. So I picked journalism in college. And then it wasn't until I'd been a journalist for a couple of years that I realized um, my passion was really in fiction, in fiction writing, and that I specifically wanted to do video games. So it was a bit of a winding <laughs> path yeah. there, but but I made it eventually. <laughs> and and how did you um how did you make that move from journalism into game writing? Yeah. Um, so there's actually a lot of game writers who started as journalists. I think the um the kind of the attention to detail and the level of research and the really like focused on your reader both being entertained and getting enough information to be able to do something translates really nicely between yeah. journalism and, and games writing. Um, but this is the specific path was uh, I applied to and got into grad school for game design at NYU. And the same year that I started grad school, I worked at Kotaku for a few months um, as a, as a reviewer and as a journalist. And then uh, I got my first game writing contract with a very small studio in Spain um, and wrote a uh, a game about Vikings in in the sixth century. And that was that was my first video game in uh, I want to say 2016 was my first game. Cool. And yeah. and for someone who is is trying to do that same kind of jump, you know, how do you is that something you just kind of apply for, or do you need to, need to have like an agent for that, or what's the kind of the, the path in, in, into sending in that like an application? Sure. Yeah. You don't have to have an agent the way that you do for um, publishing or for TV film. Um, it's it's a little more ad hoc than that. Uh, there are plenty of job postings to apply for um, in in full-time in-house studio positions mainly. Um, but also, I, I mean, the, the way that I did it, uh, so I always recommend it, but you know, there is no one path in, but being on social media in the places where gamers are, where game devs are, um, Twitter is the one I use because it's where all the game devs hang out. And, uh, you know, I just kind of put out there that like, Hey, I'm a writer. I'm really passionate about writing and I want to write games. And, um, a guy who had just founded a studio went, Hey, <laughs> we really need a writer, but we're itty bitty. <laughs> Do you, would you, would you want to work with us at all? And that's, that's how I got my first contract. And I mean, it was paid. I'm not saying you should work for free. Like, don't do that. But, but yeah. um, there are definitely different ways. There are, there's that kind of uh, just meeting people online or at cons and, and kind of getting contracts that way. And then there's also just applying to job postings. Um, there, there are lots of paths. In. Uh, um, was that the great wheel road? Is, was that mm -hmm. the game? Yeah. And yeah. obviously when you're approached by um, someone saying, we need a writer for this project. How much, you know, if if you come up with an idea for a book, you're the one 
with the idea and you're the one that eventually will have to pitch it once you've written it and all that sort of stuff. But they must have the the basis of the story or the the idea of the story when they when they approach you. How much of it is already there when you when you sign on? So a lot of that, I mean, it depends on the studio and the studio culture. Um, but actually, typically in jobs I've worked, they don't have the basis of the story yet. The writer okay. needs to help with that. But what they have are the mechanics in the genre. So they'll come to you and they'll say like, we want this to be a first person shooter or we want this to be a turn-based co-op. So they'll come at you with those mechanics or maybe they haven't even figured that out yet, but they're kind of exploring what mechanics they're interested in. So they'll come at you with that. and then. Um, from there, you do work with the team to be like, okay, what are we interested in? Like what kind of era, what kind of art style, what kind of, like yeah. you, you kind of have to pull in all the departments and then you can start pitching and coming up with story beats. Um, it is, game writing is very, very collaborative. Like that, that's for sure. I would say it's more akin to TV writing than book writing or even film writing in that there's there's a lot of people <laughs> to work with. Uh, the art director, the creative director, the lead designer, uh, everybody has a stake in the storytelling. So um, if you're a person who kind of wants to go off on your own and, and write a story, uh, game writing might not be for you. <laughs> but if you're someone who really likes bouncing ideas off other people from other disciplines, then it totally is. And you were the lead campaign writer on that game. Am, am I right in saying? Was that your Yes. Role? Yes. And, it ended so, up having... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, please. I'll just ask what exactly that, that meant. <laughs> Yeah, it, it just it ended up having uh, three campaigns based on three different civilizations. So at the top, you would pick I'm the Danes, and then it, and then you would play for uh, like ten hours um, as the Danes, and then you could do a completely new storyline with another group. So I did two of the three um, that I wrote, and then just a bunch of side content, like every every game writer. <laughs> so um, it was the Great Whale Road um, was a text based game, so it was a ton of prose writing, um, which was really fun for me. I knew prose better at the time um so it was kind of a good entry point for me and i mean looking at the way that games have kind of evolved um it really feels like the last maybe 10 20 years there's been a much more of a push into the story than there used to be when i was a kid playing games they're a lot simpler and i and, and i totally get that's kind of due to the power of the consoles etc you're able to do things which are more akin to movies or tv shows or or, or to or to show more stuff or to, or to have longer games etc um mm-hmm. and and is that something which which is quite it's kind of lend itself naturally to to having a need to get someone into write stuff as opposed to just one person doing everything and and, and really having games that focus more on the writing rather than the, even the gameplay Sure. I think the size and complexity have driven a lot of that. Um, there are some really interesting stories in those early in games that were made in the 80s and 90s, but they're, um, as you said, the tools were a lot more limited, right? We had like text boxes and we had yeah. like squeaking sounds maybe, and that, that was kind of all the consoles <laughs> could support. And uh, now, I mean, you're right with the the <laughs> the power of the consoles, we, we can just be more complex. So I, I think it's less that we want to be like TV or film. Most of the game writers I know, um, I mean, we're inspired by it. Like you're inspired by any media, but um, it's more that we have these tools. How can we use them plus gameplay and mechanics to um, really get people hooked into something that's interesting? Cause there's a lot of um, really fascinating research on like what pulls players in and what keeps them in a game. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very different. I mean, there are people who, are there entirely for the story and the characters? There are people mm-hmm. entirely there for the loot. There are people entirely there for the challenge. So for most of us, it's okay. How can we make a game where all those people are going to get something, even if you yeah. don't like the story and you're not paying attention? Okay, well you've got this awesome loot. <laughs> you know, like how? So, so we're just making these more complex experiences that have everything <laughs> as much as we can. And then the reason there are more writers now is first because of the complexity and that we do um, you know, want to tell better and better stories that are more and more emotional and satisfying and two, like they're, I mean, they're huge. <laughs> they're just, they're so big. Like if you look at a game, like uh, the first Spider-Man game, I mean, that script is ginormous. It's several screenplays. Like, so to, if you only had one person doing that, ugh, like I, I don't know when they would sleep. <laughs> like that would be horrific. <laughs> and, and it's funny because you're seeing, you're totally right. You're seeing these games like Spider-Man, etc., which are these massive ones with huge amount of writing, and all the the David Cage games are just you know twelve mm-hmm. million films long, and there and there's all that. But then the, another side of that, you've got stuff like 
12 minutes and stuff, which, which are mm. a lot more smaller, which, which are games that could have been made, you know, three, four consoles ago. They don't feel like mm-hmm. they're really taxing much, but I kind of don't feel like there was as much of a drive to make those kind of games back mm-hmm. in the day. I, I, I don't know what, I don't know what question I'm asking here. There, but. There, there were, but there were stories in, in the, like, mm-hmm. you know, there was the point and click uh, yeah, adventure games right. and yeah. stuff, which were very narrative driven mm-hmm. along with the problem solving as well. So I think there always has been some element of narr- narrative storytelling in games. Yeah. I mean, the entire Sierra online catalog is yeah. built on storytelling. I mean, Roberta Williams yeah, was a writer first and foremost. And I, you know, it's, she didn't have the same tools that we have now, although eventually like she was investing in things like green screens and full orchestras. And I mean, they invested a ton of that technology. Um, but, but yeah, I do. I think stories have been around for a while. They just didn't get as much attention maybe back in the day. Um, but, but they were definitely there. I mean, some of my favorite gaming experiences as a kid were games with stories but like you know it was it was all text it was limited yeah. or no voice acting and i was but i was in baby like <laughs> me completely. Like, and and w- when you're um writing it obviously you you've you've sat down with the whole team in all the different departments to to mm-hmm. work out the idea and stuff but is there ever any um pushback from a department saying no we're not going to be able to do that in this game and you have to kind of rejig the whole thing do you have to be more open to changing your ideas even throughout the project oh yeah for sure um and for various reasons one um the, the first and scariest word is scope like things are just too big um and that can come from that could be any number of reasons. For example, um, there was a scene I wrote in Walking Dead, the final season, and it did end up making the cut, but it was, um, it was a lot of begging. <laughs> I brought a lot of cookies to a lot of departments, but um, <laughs> it was, uh, it was a big crowd scene. So there were like eight characters in it. And, um, you know, when you're writing a book, you, you can put in as many characters as you want. The pages are the same cost, but if you put eight characters into a scene that ha- all have to be animated, it's a much more expensive scene than say two characters talking mm-hmm. to each other. Um, so that scene almost got cut, not because it was necessary to this or wasn't necessary to the story, but because it was the most expensive scene in the episode I was writing. Um, so, and, and the, and animation couldn't support it until we made cuts elsewhere. So um, scope is a big thing. How many people do we have? How much time do they have? How close are we to release? Um, another big scary thing. I mean, you know, in films and TV, you get reshoots and, uh, games have chunks that like the story's just not working. I mean, we do play tests too and the story's not going well. So maybe we have to redo some parts, but how far are we? How many people do we have? How long till release? Like that, you know, those, those problems are true for us too. So scope is a big one. Um, the other one that comes up a lot is priorities. So it's, um, you know, if we have, let's say we have a big fight sequence and players love it but the fight doesn't make any sense between the two characters who are having that fight. Like they, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't be at that point yet in the story. Um, You know, it's kind of design and narrative have to sit down and go, okay, can we move it? Can we put it somewhere else? Or does writing just need to figure out a way to make this make sense? Like, do we need to rejigger the story and their motivations? Um, So, and there's not, there's not one right answer. Story's not always right. Design's not always right. Like we all just kind of have to figure it out. And and is there like a, I mean, obviously I'm sure the answer is yes, but I take it there's a, a plan for the kind of, the plot. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know what you're saying, you had to be flexible and things have to get moved around and stuff, but I take it there's how much of a plan is there beforehand? Or or is it is it much more open in terms of this is the end point, but we don't really know how we'll, we'll, we'll get there yet? Yeah, um, it's, again, it kind of depends on the studio. Um, most studios that are uh, story narrative driven, like they identify themselves that way, have an outline beforehand and that from that outline comes um, mission lists and, and you know, types of gameplay that we'll use in all those beats. Uh, but But other studios, and this was actually more common, I would say 10 years ago, and it got us into a lot of trouble, frankly, was we would start building the game. And when I say we, I mean the industry, like not anybody specific, but you start building the game first and then kind of just let the writers throw words on top of it as they go. And from that, you get a lot of uh, 
very uneven narratives. Like it's not a good way <laughs> to, to plan out your story for sure. Um, but that said, I think one of the tricky things about game writing or any type of writing is sometimes you have good ideas when you're halfway through a project, like, you know, so, so you'll be writing, you have your outline, you have your plan and you're writing a scene and something brilliant happens and it's beautiful and everybody loves it, but Oh, it broke all the scenes around it and it made all the levels around (laughs) it real weird. So now we have to go to all those other departments and be like, can we make a change? (laughs) Can we change all these things? So, um, you know, it's creative Creative works are always kind of in flux. That's <laughs> just kind of the way it is. And, and with games like The Walking Dead and um, Batman, anyway, within mm-hmm. with these with these ones that are sort of player choice games mm-hmm. that have the branching paths and things like that, how you know? Obviously, when you're when someone sits down to write a screenplay or a book, they have a very linear. Um, plot structure they may not know it when they start at the beginning but you know it, it has a it has a, a structure that, that it sticks to throughout the book normally mm-hmm. um but with a branching pathway how do you know a how many of those to do and you know t- to write them as evenly as possible presumably because players could pick any way through it and join it all back up how do you keep track of all of that yeah, um, it's a doozy for sure. The way that uh, we did it at Telltale that I think works really well is uh, we called it role-playing rails. So let's say you're playing as Batman. There are three versions of Batman. There is um, scary Dark Knight Batman. There is compassionate, you know, like knight in shining armor Batman. And then there's um, wisecracking, you know, kind of sarcastic Batman. So those are your three role-playing rails. And um, you sketch out kind of the whole plot and you have very strong characters around Batman who kind of have their stake in the ground and they're going to react to Batman in different ways depending on which role-playing derailer you're on because those other characters are so strong and kind of have really strong personalities. So you have to sketch out good characters <laughs> and then you have to sketch out kind of an overall plot. But then once you have your role-playing rails, you can say, okay, these are some things that Batman is going to experience how would wisecracking Batman react in a way that's different from ruthless Batman that's different from, you know, and then the reputation that you build among other people and the way they talk to you and react to you is much different, whether they trust you, whether they'll help you, what, who is your enemy? Um, So that's getting those rails and understanding your characters really early is more important than even in, I would say other stories, even before you have the whole plot sketched out because the plot follows the characters and the role rails. Obviously, with these stories that have the branching path, often what will happen is that you'll branch out and sometimes you'll come back to, uh, no matter what path you take, it'll, it'll drive you back to a certain point and then you might split mm-hmm. off again. But but they often have uh, differing endings. And mm-hmm. as a writer, do you, ha- do you have a sort of definitive end in your head? Or, you know, is there, is there, a, is there a true path through the game or do you do you accept them all as potential paths it certainly depends because i think even for branching stories it's not always the right choice to have different endings sometimes it is but not always Mm -hmm. i think for batman it was a really good choice to have different endings depending on different batman (laughs) like Mm -hmm. that you're playing um it, it worked really, really well. And in that case, I would say, no, I don't, I don't typically have one ending in my head. I have, this is the ending that would make sense for Ruthless Batman. This is the end. Mm-hmm. Like, this is how people would react to them. And this is the payoff that makes sense based on his arguments, because that's another thing. Your main character is going through a different arc, depending on what rail mm-hmm. you've chosen. So the end of that arc thus has to be different. So all, that would be why those endings have to be different. Whereas something like uh walking dead the final season really had one ending i mean there were other there were different characters could be there different characters survived you know something and uh but but the ending itself was the same for every player and i think that was the right call i know that was the right call because um it was the end of clementine's story right Mm -hmm. and clementine is a character that we had known since season one and for her to have this ending like we basically know her arc through all four seasons, how she got here results in one really satisfying ending versus like, I think it would have been a mistake to be like, Oh, either she lives or she dies based on yeah. whether you were nice or not. Yeah. That would have felt yeah. really cheap. 
right? Yeah. Yeah, because I think that 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 kind of the real system of the Batman that's really interesting, and I, and I take it that that must be really helpful in ensuring that no matter what your choices are, mm-hmm. you're going to get a satisfying arc and a satisfying ending, and yeah. and. And, and 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 so rather so either you do the Batman model of you've got your own kind of mini arc separate mm-hmm. from the other two arcs, or you've got the Walking Dead one where you get pushed towards this big final ending. I think it's either way you're making sure that you control the player mm-hmm. gets to a point where they feel they've earned and they feel whether or not they know for sure if there was another ending or not, they feel satisfied with the ending and the journey that they took. Totally, and it, a lot of it depends on kind of what is the point of your season in that like for Batman, it was shaping your Batman. How does your Mm -hmm. Batman protect Gotham? So it makes sense that he would have different endings. Whereas for Walking Dead, for both seasons one and four, it's how do you shape this child in your care? So it's not as much about your character going through an arc. It is, this is your character. How are they going to shape the people around them? Um, And I think that does kind of shift the equation a little bit. Another thing that we tried a lot at Telltale, um, which is always fun, is trying to shove players who are generally on one rail into another rail, like making them face enough situations and enough characters that are difficult or push back on them that make you abandon the rail you're used to and go do something else. Um, Mm -hmm. That that's always fun because it it just makes character or it makes players change throughout the course of the story. Um, So that's kind of another um, example I like to use uh, a lot is Lauren, me wrote, um, episode three of the last season of walking dead. And there's a choice at the end. I'll try not to spoil it, but basically it's a, do you kill somebody or do you not? And, um, she set up that scenario so that most people who play as really, really nice, which is the majority of telltale players, but most people who play (laughs) as nice will be sorely tempted to go ahead and, and pull Mm -hmm. the trigger literally. Um, and, and she, I mean, it took a lot of work and, and she nailed it. Most people did switch rails in that choice. That's um, interesting. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. uh, the, the thing the Telltale games do, and also in David Cage's games, is they show you after the mm-hmm. after the episode or after the game uh, what choices players have made to that mm-hmm. point. Is that... Because we, we had um, John Ingold of Inco, who does... Uh, he did Overboard and... Um, 80 Days, the mobile mm-hmm. game and things like that, branching storylines. And he said he wanted to keep that secret from the players and just let them experience their story. And he felt that yeah. showing that kind of took them out of it a bit and, and mm-hmm. showed it was a game. If you Obviously, everyone knows it's a game, but you know, you know what I mean? He, <laughs> he felt that it kind of pulled them out of the game a bit. But do you, have, did you find that it makes players go back and revisit their choices if they can see what other people have been doing? I, I don't know that it did that as much. I don't I don't think it did. I think it kind of pulls in almost a multiplayer element, even though it's a single-player game. I, I think mm-hmm. I would describe it more that way. It makes it... There's more of a community playing this game. Mm-hmm. Um, I was recently talking to uh, Adam Miller, who worked on Destiny for a long time, and he said the same thing because he also worked at Telltale. And... He was like, it, it's episodic in a similar way because players are reacting to each other um, when you when you show them those stats. Um, so I think if you really want to keep a player kind of immersed in the single player experience and their story and their choices, um, you, like, yeah, you wouldn't want to show them those stats. But if you want them to feel like they're part of a community and we're all watching it together yeah. and that feeling of watching a TV show together yeah, and all like yeah. cheering or screaming together, then the stats make more sense um and and players did i mean they posted on forums about it they yeah. talked about it they debated like there was a big community around it because because life is strange to something similar you get a percentage of how many people yeah. gave the kids something or didn't whatever and i remember getting to the end of um it was a david cage one it was the robot the android one detroit um, mm-hmm. detroit yeah. and and that one as you say at the end of it i can't remember the end of the chapter then the game it kind of pulls out and you've got this kind of spider web of mm. pathways and you could dive into scenes and you could try and so you'd always like okay there's a, in this scene i could have done something different to trigger a different path and you mm-hmm. could replay it again try and work out and i found that and at first i was like oh that's that's awesome i want to go and try and and, and and see if i can open a new path up um and then and then I did it a few times, and then I was like, actually, it kind of 
it took away from me. I almost felt like I was losing the point of that game for me. I was actually, I mm. kind of enjoyed the journey that I went on. And the point of it for me was the was the story that I ended up with. It was not, your story. Yeah. Most, okay. yeah, exactly. It was my story. I didn't really want to see all the other permutations. I was, I'm, you know, I, I was happy with what I got. And that's, I thought that was quite interesting. I didn't, I didn't want to go down that, but I assumed I would have done, but it wasn't, it was interesting. Yeah, I don't think it would be a bad idea to have that be optional, honestly. Like, totally. Toggle, yeah, do, yeah. do you want to see those branches? Do you not? Um, I, I, I think could be an interesting design choice. Um, I also like the spider web, but I was working at Telltale when Detroit came out. So it was more like, as you know, as another interesting person, I was like, oh, that's really cool. So, uh, so I know <laughs> it's you- amazing when you, when, when, when you, it just showed to me as, as well how much planning and writing and, mm-hmm tracking of all the stuff and the number of stuff you could have done or you could have you could have missed or and it was it, i mean there's, an there's effort lots, that was into yeah, there's lots of writing presumably that a player will never see there's lots well, of a game oh, yeah. that a player will never yeah. see but yeah you you just have to be that, yeah. yeah a lot of tv writers have asked me if that like depresses me mm-hmm. <laughs> that a lot of people <laughs> write will never be seen and it's certainly me and a lot of game writers i know it's actually the opposite like if i write something tucked into a little corner of Manhattan that's hard to find and one player finds it that's awesome like yeah. that's so I I can't believe that one person found it and loves it and you know they posted on Twitter about it and now everybody's looking for that you know thing I hid in a corner like that, that's one of the <laughs> more fun parts of our yeah. job is that well that's like, the joy of video games isn't it like yeah. exactly it's interactivity it's something you don't get with a book or a film it's it's yeah. right you can, you can work with a player in a way you can't work an, an individual player where you can't get that at all with other, with other, other mediums yeah yeah more recently you also wrote the miles morales spider-man game which was obviously a big hit but a very different type of game from uh, the sort of telltale narrative games and almost like a sandbox for the player to play in but there is this mm-hmm. obviously very impactful linear more linear story throughout the game Mm -hmm. so does your writing is the writing process for that type of game any different or is it the same basic approach that you take it's definitely different because in that case um for for a single player game like uh miles morales you're not okay. We have three Batman, <laughs> or we have you know a yeah. time who's trying to shape this kid. We have a very strong central character, so we're diving into who is Miles, what kind of arc does he need to go through, what kind of changes do does he need to go through, what are uh you know what's the version of him in the comics versus Spider Verse versus our Miles? Like what are the differences and similarities? So so it is um, different uh, in in that regard. And then uh, you're right, like with a single player story, it is much more similar to other types of writing in that we're, you're plotting out beats and one big mm-hmm. character arc and all these other characters. But um, there are still ways in which we need to use what I call and what a lot of people call conditional dialogue, which is some of the dialogue changes depending on what you've done in the story. So the big mm-hmm. one for us on Miles was there was a quest line uh, that I wrote that was the the Harlem quest line, which is... Miles can do all of these things specifically to help his new neighbors in Harlem uh, and kind of become known as the neighborhood Spider-Man in Harlem. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do them for the entire story, like you you just don't do the side content, that's fine. Like the main story doesn't change in a big way. But if you do them, uh, you have certain moments where there are different lines of dialogue from people that you're meeting because they recognize you. You have um, a lot of people who show up in the ending, like to kind of cheer you on or people that you met in the Harlem quest line. Mm-hmm. So we're still thinking of, you know, the, these different ways the story is reacting to you, just maybe not as dramatically as a telltale game would, um, but it's still there. Um, it was me and uh, Charlie Carucci was the designer of the Harlem quest line. And, and we were both kind of putting our heads together, trying to come up with all these conditionals and how it could be played out of order and all the stuff that you can only do in a video game. Yeah, that's that's something I always kind of thought about when you've got an open world sandbox like that, when you've mm-hmm. got players who could be triggering a dialogue, but then they could turn around and go back or they could miss something or, you know, how do you, how do you plan for that? Or is it, or, or how do you write, or is it, I mean, is it possible to write something in a way that no matter which order they do something or if they start something, then stop and turn around and, and leave it, you know, how much do you lock someone in to make sure the story makes sense? 
Sure. I mean, that is, I think the biggest challenge of open world games and not just for insomnia for every, every time I play an open world game, I have this thought is pacing, right? Because Mm -hmm. even if the, even if your main story has really good pacing, if somebody stops after a mission and then just kind of swings around for four hours, they might be feeling like, oh, the pacing's really dropped off. And it's like, no, no, it was you. <laughs> you did it. We didn't do that. <laughs> but I do that all the time. I was playing um, Assassin's Creed Valhalla and, and I did, I stopped the main story so I could just walk around the countryside and I'm like, oh, wow, it really slowed down. I'm like, no, you slow down, genius. Like, get back to the story. Um, so, so that is really tricky. And I, I think in terms of what we can control, making sure like side content is side content. Don't try to treat it like mainline content. Don't, if, if it is something that, um, you know, the player character wouldn't or couldn't know until a certain point in the main story, make sure you gate it behind those main story points. It can't be triggered till then. Um, but otherwise I tend to be on team. Don't make side content have a huge impact on the main story because it's just not really fair to the player who thought they could mop all that up after the main story. Um, but I know different people have different feelings on that. Uh, that's just my take. And I also, oh, sorry, sorry, no, when you go to I was going to say as a, as a, as an aside, I had heard that, um, the voice actors in the Spider-Man games had to record every line twice, once for, if they were a character was running and one, if they were swinging. So if they were swinging, it was more kind of like breathy and like panting. And then yeah. if they're on, on ground, it was more just kind of normal. Is that, is that true? That is true. They have, um, you know, we cut like swinging lines and not swinging lines, essentially. So like if um, if Spider-Man has been swinging, but now he's just kind of hanging out on a rooftop, it will trigger one type of line. And if he's still swinging, <laughs> it will trigger the other read of the line. That's amazing. Because um, I remember yeah. having that thought when I was running and there's having a chat with someone and then you start swinging and suddenly he's, he's like breathy. And I was like, how does he know that I'm swinging now? Like it was, yeah, obviously <laughs> the answer is you record everything twice and... Yeah, yeah, it's that's very, a massive job. Oh yeah. I mean the the programming and the I mean the audio team at Insomniac is just so great. I mean, I'm impressed by them at all times anyway. Um, which is great because we work very closely together. But <laughs> like they're they're um they're phenomenal. It's the the things that they pick up on, uh, you know, it'll be like I'm playing through the game and I don't really notice. And they're like, oh, oops, the like resting version of the line just triggered and you were swimming. So we have to fix that bug. And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't even hear it. What are you talking about? But yeah, it really does help with the immersion. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. there were, I remember a bug um, before Miles release, we fixed it, but there was a bug where only his swimming lines were triggering for a minute. And it was like, why is he screaming? <laughs> and it's like, but when you're swimming, it makes sense. So um yeah, it's a really cool system for sure. But but as a writer as well, it must be good fun to be able to. You've got the main story that you're writing, obviously, and mm-hmm. something like that. But to sort of dive deeper into the sort of little bits of of uh, in other games that be lower, I suppose. But you know, just mm-hmm. the the pe- things people say on the street or the little interactions that a character has, it it lets you build up the characters in the story in a way that you can't really in, a, in other formats yeah i mean you're building a whole world you're not yeah. just building um your main story you are building an entire universe right there i mean for example like yes all of the pedestrian conversations we wrote those uh what, what they're talking about and uh another big one uh was miles's social media page um that was crowdsourced um like a lot of people in somniac contribute that but i was kind of curating it and i was oh, adding cool. a bunch too and it's just like writing tweets <laughs> for people in the <laughs> spider-man universe and it was it was really fun uh it is a and, different part of our job and so. how much control do marvel have like do they have quite a lot of saying things like you can't you can't see this word or you can't speak like that or or, or you can't have this character etc yeah sure i mean at the end of the day it's it's their character and they understand the character and the limits of that character and kind of that character's moral compass and limits mm-hmm. and how ways they would react to things. So I wouldn't say that Marvel, it's not that Marvel has a rubber stamp or not. It's that Marvel is there like in every milestone. I mean, you know, they, they play the builds, they, um, okay. they read the outlines, they read the scripts. Um, and, and again, they're not rubber stamping or not, but they are saying, Hey, this doesn't really sound like Peter, or this doesn't really sound like something, uh, you know, Doc Ock would do, or like they have that feedback and it's really helpful. Right. Cause Mm we, I mean, we're all like, we've read the comics, but like, it's good to have other opinions with that really deep kind of lore that they can call on. 
um, that, that we might have missed, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose at the end, you want it to feel like a comic as much as everyone who plays it. So as, as everyone's been on the same page and, and, and make it as close to the authentic product as, as Although as given it your own twist as well, presumably. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, because I, I think there's also, I mean, one of the, the tricky things about any character that's been around for a long time is finding your kind of version and your take. I mean, Insomniac's Peter Parker is different than a Peter Parker that you've seen in the movies and mm-hmm. is different than various runs of the comics, but he still has a lot of the traits that you would come to expect from Spider-Man. You know, he still believes in his sense of responsibility. He still believes in helping people. He still isn't doing it for money. You know, there's all of these, I, I, I don't want to say limits because it has a negative connotation, but it is like limits on there are ways he would not act ever, but the actual interpretation of him has um little tweaks depending on the team building him and i i was going to ask about as well because you've also um worked on some comics as well um which is another form of collaborative writing in a way because obviously you've got your your artistic team as well is is your approach to that writing any different to your video game writing um it's it's similar in that they're both scripts and it is similar in that um they're both visual. So one of the the biggest differences between that and say writing prose is what I'm looking at when I'm writing doesn't look anything like the final product. So mm. I have to be very cognizant of and humble about the fact that I'm just making a blueprint, right? Like this is not what the player is going to see, it's not what the comic reader is going to see. Um so I have to be as clear and descriptive is inter- and like interesting as I can before I hand off that script to an audio department, an artist, a set of artists, an animator. Um, it, it's much more about being clear in, in those action lines and then trusting my collaborator to, to read it and then to, and, you know, to interpret the best way they can. And it also, um, once you've handed it off, I mean, you're still a collaborator. They're still going to talk to you and ask your opinion on things, but I think it behooves you as a writer to not have a vice-like grip on the mm-hmm. final product, like to really treat artists and animators and designers and everybody as collaborators because what they are, they might read your action line and come up with something way better and awesome. <laughs> like, great. We, we should, we should welcome that. We should, you know, well, that's yeah. not how I pictured it. Well, who cares? It's cooler. <laughs> like I described that building as green and they painted it pink. Like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you know? so, so to serve the larger, larger right, uh, right. goal. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and later on this year, you have a book, Gamer Girls, which is which is, which is out mm-hmm. in June, I think it is. Yeah, it's, it, yep. Comes out uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what, what the book's about? So Gamer Girls is uh, a, a series of profiles on 25 women who um, worked in kind of the earlier years of video game development and uh, either maybe they did get um, did get a lot of attention, but we don't know the whole story, like in the case of Amy Hennig or mm-hmm. Roberta Williams, or maybe they didn't get a ton of attention, but they uh, what they were making and what they were building had a huge impact on other designers down the line, whether they knew it or not, like Muriel Tramis and Danielle Buttonberry and um, Donna Bailey are a few that come to mind. So it's it's all these women who were working in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even the early 90s uh, who had this massive impact on how games are made and why they're made and, and what we play um, that you might never have heard of, but you mm-hmm. totally should. <laughs> and, Amy Hennig ones in... Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, um, is, is the industry... Um, opening up more because obviously the 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 um the sort of i can't think of the word the 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 sort of um representation of the industry is very male male orientated but is it is it now opening up more as an industry as a whole yeah i mean according to the data we have yes there are more it is becoming slowly but steadily more diverse in terms of race and gender and like which is great the the where we're still working and will be working for a long time is it's one thing to bring people into this industry it's another thing to then treat them well and keep them there right Mm -hmm. um so uh you know part of part of the reason i wanted to write the book and this is the intro of the book but (laughs) part of the reason i wanted to write it is young women that i've talked to that i've mentored 
you know, the only headlines they see are the stories about harassment and abuse. And like, obviously those stories need to be reported. That needs to be stopped. But also I really wanted to let those young women know, and it is a YA book. I wanted to let young people know that that's not all this industry is. And it's certainly not what this industry has to be. Those are the Mm. worst parts of the industry that need to be expunged immediately. And, you know, like just eat it out of the industry, but like, but that's not all we are either. There are passionate, creative, thoughtful, kind women and, you know, and men and and people of other genders who also work in this industry and are supporting one another. So I wanted to show kind of that side of it too. Um, It's not all bad and doom and gloom and it will continue getting better as people like this, like these women are promoted and kept and uh, respected and listened to is part of the book as well. And I suppose over time, um, I'd imagine imagine the biggest, the biggest thing is, is, yeah, you're getting more women into the industry, but are, are they are they leading um, teams? Like, are they, are they like I kind of th- the ones I always think of the head of Activision, Naughty Dog, etc. It's all men, and it's all you know, especially with Activision, you get names in the paper for the wrong reasons, etc. But it, it feels like there's would that be the biggest way to to make change? Would be to have women rise up to the top of the company to actually be able to uh, see cha- make big change. I think that's a huge part of it. Again, like in general, I, I think it, it can be a little um, deceptive to say, oh, hey, let half our company is women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you actually dig into the stat, it's and they're all junior level. Like, yeah, exactly. oh, okay. exactly. so we didn't we didn't really nail that one. Um, you do need people at all levels of seniority. And, um, you know, I, I've said before, like when you're trying to recruit more diversely, one of the biggest ways you can tell on yourself is if all of the people interviewing those people coming in are uh, middle-aged white guys. Like, okay, well, what does that tell me? That tells me these are the people getting promoted who have decision-making power, right? Um, So it is about not just recruiting people, but also training them up and giving them opportunities and listening to them when they're having issues with your culture and adjusting that culture appropriately and really trying to focus on retainment as much as recruitment. Um, and you're right, like the more, the more we can get diversity at the top, the better things we'll get. And then also, um, we have data that people, people of marginalized backgrounds tend to stay in studios longer when there are people who look like them. <laughs> like, that's just true. If you have, oh, we, we recruited one woman in a studio of 89 men, <laughs> you might, even if they're all real nice to her, she, she might be tempted to jump ship for the studio yeah. over there that has 15 women, you know, in a studio mm. of 30 people. So yeah. uh, that, that's another factor to consider. Um, and uh, you're, you're now working on, I think the, the Wolverine game that, that was announced, um, which is another, obviously Marvel property. And is it fun playing in the sandbox of these you know you've done batman done walking dead these these things that other people you know that these characters that other people have created and so many people love is it good fun playing in that sandbox yeah there are two angles to that that i love first of all my favorite like genre to read when i'm just on my own is uh historical fiction and i think there's a lot in common with like i have to do a lot of research in order to write this i need to know who are the big players and what were the big issues and what, you know, like that's all true. If you're working in an IP, if you're working in history, like it's just a lot of research. And the second thing is, uh, I mean, I grew up with Wolverine, like Wolverine was my dude. He was one of my favorite, uh, superheroes. Like I, you know, I watched animated X-Men as a kid and Wolverine was like my favorite and I couldn't, tell you why we don't have a lot in common we don't look like <laughs> like but but I love that guy every time he was on screen he's snarking at somebody and yeah. popping claws and so to um to get the chance to then kind of you know write him and understand him oh it's awesome like eight-year-old me is bouncing off the walls <laughs> I mean I mean you've worked on Spider-Man you've worked on Wolverine mm-hmm. um you've written comics would you want to write a Marvel comic is that something which you'd be interested in do? I would. I don't know when I would have time. <laughs> like, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Caveat: <laughs> like, I do. I need sleep. Um, like, so last semester, I taught narrative design um, in college, and 
and I kind of, I I'm, I'm taking a bit of a break right now because between like, I wrote two comics and I was finishing the book and I was teaching a class and still working in insomniac. And I was like, this is a little too much. So, <laughs> so right now I'm on a bit of a, a chill. <laughs> fair enough. That sounds fair enough. And, and yeah. well, the, my next question will, will probably get a similar response, but I was just wondering if maybe not now, but in the future, would you want to ever write a screenplay for a film? Yeah, I mean, again, like I would be if I had a really brilliant idea. Yes, <laughs> I haven't like yet. You know, the muse has not woken me in the middle of the night, going, "This is your screenplay." Yeah. But um, <laughs> I would certainly be interested. I think at this phase, I would be more interested in television than film. Mm. I mean, and I say that like caveat, caveat. I've never done it, so I'm not saying like, "Oh, and I could swoop in and be brilliant." Like, I would certainly need um, you know mentorship from more experienced writers. But um, TV, much like telltale you know it has that great episodic nature yeah. it has these long storylines that you can really dig into your characters like i think that's what i would look at um first but but yeah i would be interested in that too uh i mean i started writing comics just kind of to see if i liked writing comics and i did so i i'm kind of open to trying different media and seeing how it goes <laughs> at any given time cool awesome so you've got wolverine coming out or at some point you're working on that just now you've got your book coming out in june um, mm-hmm. what what's next? What, what else is, is on the is on the plate? Oh, let's see. What am I allowed to talk about? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I have a I have a few whip projects in my back pocket, <laughs> none of which are announced yet, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but but I do. Yeah, I'm still still cranking out ideas as best I can. Um, we'll see. <laughs> Follow yeah. me on the internet and you something <laughs> exciting might happen. <laughs> Excellent. Given time, I don't know. <laughs> what was the last game that you played? So, <laughs> last night, um, and it is completely because of the trailer reveal yesterday, I actually started replaying The Wolf Among Us, <laughs> which is... <laughs> my favorite telltale game uh and uh you know obviously like i i haven't worked at telltale in a few years because of the 2018 everything that happened but um just being able to sink back into like that kind of writing and that story and that world like i I was immediately it felt like sinking into a bubble bath it was like oh yes i love this story um so i i started replaying it last night yeah (laughs) nice yeah i think that's maybe my favorite one as well i i I never Mm -hmm. read fables at all before that but i just i thought it did an amazing job of this really cool world, which mm-hmm. um, and just you know the, the the characters were just fantastic, and yeah, I'm, I've been looking forward to part two for quite a while, so I'm, I've got high hopes for it. I have to duck back in. The art style is so great. I mean, the saturated yeah. colors and the noir feeling, and um, Bigby's a great character. Yeah, yeah. it's I, I love yeah. everything about it. Yeah. Um, what about the last film that you watched? Oh gosh, what was it? Hold on, this one might take a second. Um. <laughs> Cause I usually like binge films with my husband, like over the weekend. I'm like, uh, it was one of those. 12. <laughs> <laughs> what? what? Hold on one sec. This is embarrassing. Oh, I think it was actually rogue one. Weirdly. Oh, enough. Okay. Um, cool. Like, nice. I, yeah, I was, and I watched that one by myself. I didn't even invite the husband. <laughs> Someone had been talking about it again on the internet. Like we've been watching Boba Fett show, like a lot of America. And, uh, uh, I I was just kind of pulled into oh yeah all this stuff that happened before the original trilogy is really interesting so um, so I went back watched Rogue One cried again life was great <laughs> 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 Good. well uh, that might answer my next question which is what is the last TV show that you watched or are watching it would have been Boba Fett except I watched an episode of you season three this morning so okay <laughs> oh, okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, that's a show that... man. <laughs> I, I tried to watch. I kind of I bounced off that in the first season. That one, that one about the serial killer, he kidnaps mm. the girl. Yeah, I don't know why. I, I didn't. I couldn't get through. I, I know everyone loves it, but I couldn't click on it for some reason. Season one really sucked me. Like I watched the whole season, and then I rewatched the whole season like immediately because it was so. It was really tightly plotted. It was really good at um, cliffhangers without them feeling mm-hmm. like cliffhangers. Like they just did a really good job with season one and. I don't know why I didn't watch season three when it first came out. I was probably just doing other things, but but I'm now getting my way through it, and it's it's really good again too. I mean, in my opinion, awesome. Uh, oh, uh, the the very very last thing we always do is a super quick fire, either or. 
So there's, I always say there's no right answer apart from one. And <laughs> we'll start sure. off with, <laughs> with a Batman or a Spider-Man. Oh, I can't pick between my boys. No, I'm, I'm choosing or. I'm circling or on the top. <laughs> um, Last of Us or Life is Strange? Last of Us barely <laughs> edges out. Oh, this is hard. This is the hardest part of the interview. <laughs> uh, TV or cinema? TV or what? Or cinema? cinema yeah. Uh, TV. I'll go with TV. Um, a fancy restaurant or a takeout? Take out because I get to wear sweatpants. Oh, <laughs> <I enjoy it. laughs> and uh, the last one, real book or ebook? My my heart says real book, but my schedule says <laughs> the book's on my phone. <laughs> that's, the, that's the correct answer I was looking for. Ebook, that's fine. No, no, it's fine. Wait, 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 with, with, with your brain, that's sensible. That's fine. <laughs> Tarek's yeah, a big just, ebook advocate, as you can tell. Yeah. And you, there's Whatever not a lot of us out there. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. All, I feel it's a losing, a losing fight. I have a lot of guests in the show, so I'm glad to find something <laughs> in the corner at last. That's fine. Well, I feel like on weekends when I'm just trying to spend a lot of time reading, it's the real book. But when I'm like, in a doctor's office waiting or i'm in like i don't know i'm like the killing time factors. i just have my cell yeah. phone the ebook's right there yeah, so. yeah. yeah. although actually <laughs> a lot of guests are now saying audiobooks as well as the as the other option i need to i wish i had that a better attention span because every time i try to listen to an audiobook um but not podcasts weirdly enough just audiobooks like my mind wanders in 18 directions and then they're talking about something i'm like wait what why is he over there (laughs) i know you mean that's weird the podcast they do they grab me more than i I love an audiobook i think with a podcast because it's like a conversation you can kind of be distracted a bit but you're still sort of taking it in maybe someone talking to you as well a book you can miss a line or two and suddenly you don't know what the heck's going on yeah yeah i think that's exactly it you can dip in and out of conversations like 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 we all do but but not so much when it's like oh hey we've set up this whole conflict that you need to understand i'm like yeah yeah why are they fighting it (laughs) that ain't it I really enjoyed that chat. That was that was that was really interesting. I've enjoyed a lot of those games, and it, it's always fun to see how they're made and peek behind the scenes a little bit. And uh, I have to say, the whole having to record the dialogue twice for Spider Man is one of these things that I just you would never have thought of as you're playing it. But when you realise, of course, somebody has to do both. Yeah, things. I know. It's yeah, it's not like the the AI isn't isn't clever no. enough to to change someone's voice just if add you're on the, moving uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, yeah, it was really interesting. Obviously, amazing. Uh, uh, you know, portfolio of games that Mary's oh, working yeah, really on. Cool. Really looking forward to the Wolverine game as well. Yeah, I'm very excited for that. And obviously her book, Gamer Girls, is uh, out soon. I think it's um, in July a couple of months. 2022, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, um, th- that sounds really interesting as well because I used to play, you know, the Sierra Online games and all that sort of stuff as well that, that are featured in that. So it sounds, sounds great. So um, do pre-order that. Thanks very much to Mary for coming on to the podcast. And... We have another great guest next week. We do indeed. We are chatting with Sam Holland. And Sam, her debut novel is The Echo Man, and that's just out uh, April this year, so pretty new. And it's a fantastic read. I read it recently, and um, it's a re- it's about a serial killer who is copying the MOs of all the famous c- serial killers throughout history. So you've got your Jack the Ripper, your... Ted, Ted Bundy, your um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting idea because it, it's one of these ideas that you think, of course, I know when someone I, tells I, you, totally, that's exactly. What I, thought. I thought that why didn't I think of that idea? It's it's a yeah. great idea, and it's just and if you're a fan of these kind of like dark, horrory novels, Zodiac, etc., it's right up your street. Um, and it's a really it's a really fun chat. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's um, was uh, good fun. So yeah, please do tune in for that episode. Now I mentioned at the start of uh, the podcast that we would be doing a live chat with adrian tchaikovsky and we're recording that at chimera festival which is the um science fiction fantasy and horror literature festival at um in edinburgh sorry and that's over the jubilee weekend i believe uh, the the third to the fifth is the queen coming yeah i think so i think she's doing a video message yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah she might send us a question for our podcast Um, but but our show, if if you are in Edinburgh or and uh, fancy coming along, the tickets are free, but you do need a ticket, um, and you can book them on the Chimera 
website. We'll put a link to that in the podcast description. And it's at on Saturday uh, at um, one o'clock, I think. Uh, yep. So, I mean, yeah. Festival of Science Fiction, Fantasy, Horror, Adrian Tchaikovsky, us, free. Well, I don't, I'm not seeing a downside here, Marco. And even more than that, Tarek, you will also be able to buy a discounted page one notebook <laughs> if you attend at the festival. It just gets better. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it would be great to great to um, see you there. We'll have questions from the listeners, and if you do have a question for Adrian, please do feel free to send that in to us. Yeah. We should also say that we'll be there all weekend selling the notebook. So if anybody just wants to pop along and say hi, they're more than welcome to. Always nice mm. to meet a fan. Exactly. Still to meet exactly. one, so there must be one out there. <laughs> exactly. That isn't your mum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, she's coming. Don't worry, she'll be there. <laughs> but uh, if you did enjoy the episode. Uh, as ever, uh, please do take time to give us a rating and review, if possible, on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favourite podcast app is, because that really helps us uh, in the charts. And if you can also encourage others to uh, like and subscribe and all of that stuff, then that that's a huge help as well. And of course, if you would like to get in touch, perhaps to send us a question for Adrian Tchaikovsky, you can always do so uh, by sending a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at right underscore gear. Or you can send us an email, which is podcast at rightgear.co.uk. But otherwise, have a great week and we'll speak to you next week. See you later. (laughs) 